past two nights we have talked about time that I described as having somewhat of an electric atmosphere. We think about the day of Pentecost and the apostles receiving the Holy Spirit, the miracles occurring, people being baptized. What a time to have visited and to have seen. Tonight we're going to talk about another electric event, but one that was not nearly as good as what we've been discussing. This electric event took place on the plain of Dura. And on that plain, a king had decided that he was going to set up his own idol. He was going to set up his own way of receiving glory and to bring that glory to himself. And what we're going to see tonight is a king who was drunk on his own power, but yet he's going to be challenged by some young men who made a decision that they were not going to allow that to happen. And so this evening, as we think about this collision on the plain of Dura, we're going to go to the book of Daniel. I'll have most of the passages on the screen, but if you'd like to follow along in your own Bible, we'll be in Daniel chapter 3 for the first part of the lesson. And while we're preparing to get into this section, let me just mention a little bit about these early chapters in Daniel. If you're looking for a theme, it's pretty easy to see, and that's the theme that God wins over kings. There are all of these kings that are setting themselves up and they're trying to prove that they're this great and wonderful and fascinating person. And they do that to the rivalry of God and God every time shows them you're not going to win. And it's a powerful book because here's God who's protecting some young men who say we're not going to defile ourselves. Here's God who's letting a hand right on the wall. Here's God who's closing the mouths of lions and he's showing every time that he's going to be victorious. But there's also something else I want us to acknowledge. These are unusual events. Usually, when a human comes into contact with a lion, the lion's going to kill the human. And usually, when young men are carried off into captivity, they're going to bend to the will of the king or they're going to be killed themselves. And so what we see in the book of Daniel are unique circumstances with unique conclusions to them. And the one we're going to focus on for the first part of our study tonight is dealing with three young men who are going to take a stand on the plain of Dura who are going to show the king that though he may be a very powerful man, he's not more powerful than God. And what I'd like for us to do is to think about the kind of ways that they're showing this, and then to understand that from our own life in the times in which we're living. Well, let's start here in Daniel 3 as we look at these three young men who are now going to be put to the test. Three young men who are going to have to make a name for themselves by honoring the name of God rather than the king. So as we start out this scenario, we're going to see King Nebuchadnezzar doing something that's not uncommon for kings to do, and that's to place themselves in kind of a religious role to make themselves gods. And so let's look and see what Nebuchadnezzar does. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent, and here's one of our lists we're going to keep coming across, 
and gathered the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So just in case you didn't get it in that, then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It's interesting sometimes in Old Testament literature, you're seeing the words creating a scene for you. And I think what's going on here in the book of Daniel is we're going to keep coming across all these government officials as a way of showing just how big a deal this is. Everybody who's anybody is going to be here to show the king that they are in full alliance as he's commandeering religion for himself. And so that list we'll run into a time or two uh, as well. So here he is. He's got his statue set up. And what's also interesting is how easily the people fall in line. So picking up in verse 4. The herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound, and here we go with our next big list, of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Isn't it interesting how much like sheep we really are? I think that's the reason God picked this scenario. We are such followers. And so here's a king and he says, Now I want you to worship me, but you know, if you choose not to, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to throw you in the furnace just right away. There will be no trial. You're going straight to your death. And the people say, Well, that sounds like a good idea to us. And so uh, the band strikes up. We've got this big list of all these instruments. And I think we've got the same thing going on here as with all of those officials. you got the whole orchestra playing. So put yourself here on the plane as all of this is going on. The statue has been constructed. Every noble in the land is there. All the musicians are present. They're all celebrating this great event. And everybody falls down. Let me point out one other thing rather intriguing about this section. If you noticed a couple of times, we came across where he said all the people, nations, and languages were there. Now, if you put that in the biblical context, we're going to find that in three different places. We're going to find it in Genesis 10, as we're talking about the building or the, the surrounding section that's dealing with the tower of what we call Babel. Everywhere else in the Bible, it's translated Babylon. So you've got the, the peoples and the languages and the nations spoken of with the Tower of Babylon. You've got it spoken of here in the book of Daniel with literal Babylon, the one that was the big major empire. And the third place you've got it spoken of is in the book of Revelation where Babylon is used for a symbolic name for an empire that's coming in. So God's giving the, this intertestamental view 
that these are people who are willing to pull everybody in to their wickedness. They don't care. Everybody's uniting around this, and that stands in in such contrast to what the Lord wants with people uniting around Him. So the king has commandeered the religion. The people are readily going to obey, except for three. And so here are three young Jewish men. They've been brought into captivity. They're bright. They're good-looking guys. They're talented. They've been put in the king's service, but they are unwilling to bow down to this statue. And there's a great deal of jealousy for these men. They have gotten pretty honorable positions in the eyes of the king. And so there are those who are quite ready to see them brought down. And so they go and, and tattle on them. They go and tell the king what's going on. So we go to verse 12. And it says there are certain Jews. This is what the king's being told. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These men were not setting out to make a name for themselves. Yet, because of the stand they're taking, they become quite known. They're very well known for what's happening. And so the king is livid about this. Nebuchadnezzar calls them. And the text tells us in furious rage. Imagine the look on his face as this is happening. He commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, here we go, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But, if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Are your Genesis ears perking up? Because that sentence, that question, is very similar to what Pharaoh asked Moses. And who is this God that I should serve him? And so we've got Nebuchadnezzar, who is this God who's going to be able to deliver you out of my hands? And so we're seeing this theme running across where now the serpent is coming through in this kind of snaky king. Here's Nebuchadnezzar who's serving the purposes of the devil in saying, you're going to obey me or else you're going to suffer very fiery consequences because of it. How many people do you think would have buckled at this point? How many people do you think would have said, you know what I can do? <laughs> in fact, I'll have to tell you this little story. I was teaching this one time in, in, to eighth graders. And so I just asked the question, I said, what would you do? And one young man said, well, I would bow down, but in my mind I would just be praising God. <laughs> 
I think there's a lot of people who'd make that kind of excuse, right? Well, I'm going to bow down, but I'm not really bowing to this statue. I'm really bowing to God, and he's the one on my mind, not these young men. The king has rejected God, and what he's going to find is that these three reject him. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image that you have set up. Think about their attitude for a minute. I think three things stand out to us. First of all, these young men were respectful. You don't have a lot of name calling here. They're not insulting the king. It's almost like they're saying, yes, sir, Mr. King, sir, this is our answer to you. They're not bowing to that kind of of foolishness. I think also what stands out is that they're very resolute. We've made up our minds. This is not something that's negotiable for us. We've determined, we're resolute in this matter. We are not going to bow down to your statue. And we also find that they're unswerving. God can save us. We trust that. But if God chooses not to save us, well and good. We're not bowing down. What an impressive, impressive attitude. Now, we probably most of us anyway, know the rest of the story. We know that the king is infuriated by this. He he has the fire heated up really, really hot so that it's even going to kill the guards who are pushing these three young men in. And yet as the king sits to watch this very gruesome scene, he's amazed because nothing happens to these young men. And in fact, there's a fourth person in there with them who's been sent to comfort them. When they get out, they don't smell like smoke, not a hair's been singed, and Nebuchadnezzar praises God. That's the rest of the story. But yet, what I want to do is to stop it right here. Because at this point, these three young men had no idea what was about, well, they knew it was going to be one thing or the other. God was either going to save them, or God was not going to save them in this earthly sense. They had no idea which way it was going to go. No privy information to this. And yet still, with respect, resolved to stand firm, they unswervingly looked the king in the eye and did not blink. That's the kind of faith that we find in the book of Daniel. And I hope that's the kind of faith that we can think about in our own lives. So then, this week, we've been talking about making choices. We've talked about our choice of how we're going to view Jesus Christ. Are we going to view him like a foolish king, or are we going to view him like wise men do? We've talked about the choice. Are we going to trust in God like Philip did, or are we going to be like Simon the sorcerer and try to find something else to trust in? Are we going to make the choice? To take the gospel message to people who need it, like Lydia and the the jailer. And the choice that we're talking about tonight is one 
that the people of God have always had to face. But yet there are occasions that come when this choice becomes much more real. When it becomes something that you are going to be confronted with, not maybe, you're going to. This week, I had no idea this was going to happen when I decided on my topics a while back. This week or this past weekend, I can't remember which, there was an event that took place in our capital at our White House, the People's House, where the President lives, in which a rainbow flag was placed squarely in the center of events. A flag that represents those who have kind of joined together as a social cause in the kind of living that most of us would consider to be a perversion of what God desires. And at this event, at the White House, pornographic pictures were taken of those who had determined to change genders. And that was highly publicized. Fortunately, while the White House shouldn't have been involved in such a thing anyway, they did respond that they did not approve of that, which at least I was glad that they said that. Did you ever think you'd be living in a time like that? Your wildest dreams, those of you who are a little older anyway, did you ever think we would be living in a culture that's, that's dealing with all of these things? It's, it's like you're trying to get your mind wrapped around one part of it and yet then something even more outrageous comes along. And <laughs> so we may be standing on the plain of Dura. And as we consider that, whether we end up as Babylon or not, whether we do, whether it's 25 years from now, whatever. I want us to talk about the choice that we have. Because really it's the same choice that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced. And that's just simply a fact of whose side are you going to stand on? Whose side are you going to be with? And so we're going to explore those three ideas that we saw in them as we think about the choice that we make. And I would encourage all of us as we consider this to consider the idea of being respectful. Let's think about something the Apostle Peter wrote. We're going to go to the end of his first epistle and then back near the beginning. As he was wrapping his epistle up, he said, She who is at Babylon. Now, you know your world history. That ought to strike you as really odd. Because Babylon has been long gone by this point. Babylon has been put in. It's in the dustbin of history by this point. But Peter strategically uses that word because what he's doing is what God has been doing since Genesis chapter 11, and that's describing nations that go astray in the terms of Babylon. So likely, as he's here in Rome, the heart of this evil empire in which many of these first century Christians are living, he says, she who's at Babylon greets you. But then notice what he says earlier in his, in his letter. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. 
For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You ever read much about these emperors? They were not good people. They were not moral, decent folks. And yet here's Peter saying, look, you be respectful to the emperor. In fact, this latter part's almost like a hierarchy. He says, now fear belongs to God. <laughs> That's at the top. But you also make sure you love your brethren. And then he has on that lower tier, just like you honor everyone, you honor the emperor also. Peter was writing this in a section of his epistle that's Christian submitting to unchristian authority. And so he deals with slaves who had non-Christian masters and wives who had non-Christian husbands and citizens who have non-Christian governments. And so not very different from us, here are people who were in the leadership positions who were doing things that were considered very much immoral by God and yet the Apostle Peter is saying you need to respect those people. And you and I need to listen to them. That when we're thinking about our leadership, Peter is never encouraging insurrection. Never notice that? You could think of Jesus coming to earth and his apostles. They could have easily had that zealot spirit that said, you know, we're going to restore things the way it ought to be. And, and we're going to plot. And we're going to come up with some kind of coup maybe if we can get somebody on the inside. Never any of that. There's never that idea of rebelling against the leadership. Nor is there ever any encouragement to diminish the leadership. These people who are authorizing attacks on the people of God. These people who are corrupt and immoral. Never encouraged the Christians to speak evil of them. In fact, just the opposite of that. You don't speak evil of them is what's being said. So then, we take that application and we think about ourselves. I think for Americans, this is a tough, tough topic. Because it's just kind of in our bones to complain about the government. That, that's just kind of the style of America from the firing of the revolutionary shots to the present. That you are going to hold your leader's feet to the fire and if you don't like it, you're going to write them up and you're going to give speeches. And yet, when a Christian reads this, we begin thinking, is that really the way that I'm supposed to be? This really hit home for me a while back. It's been several years now. There's a young man who I baptized, and uh, at the time, he was just on fire for the Lord, wanting to study all the time, and so we would study, and he, he liked to get off topic, and so we would do that some too. And he said, you know, I've been looking at a lot of Christians' Facebook pages, and I've just been shocked at how all of them are so political. I'm not a Facebook person for several reasons, but I thought about that statement, how telling it was. That when you're looking at what someone is putting out there as their public face, the public thing they're say, saying is, I just really can't stand the government. I just really can't stand what these leaders are doing. And so I think for us, and this is kind of odd for a guy who's been teaching government for 30 years to say, we need to be very careful about what we say about the government. 
Because Peter's pretty expressive here in that, that you're to give honor, you're to give respect. And so we stand there with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we're saying, your honor, your sir, your majesty, whatever. We're respectful, both in our speech and what we say virtually. But we're also resolute. The idea of respect is a whole different ball game from taking these things in to be a part of your life. And so as we consider that idea of being resolute, I want us to look at these letters that we find early in the book of Revelation. They're written to different churches. And we find, I've just got all three up here from chapter 2 and from chapter 3 also. Where the Lord says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Only hold fast what I have until I come. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. You see that, that resolute spirit? Here were people in the throes of persecution. Here were people who were, in a sense, standing on the plain of Dura in their own time period. And the Lord is saying to them, you just make sure that you hold on. That's hard to do. And it's really hard to do when you've got society that's kind of subtly working to influence you in the other way. And maybe even not so subtly. It's hard to stand up and to stay faithful and to stay resolute in your beliefs when you've got this kind of pressure coming up. Now that being said, as it stands right now, we don't face an emperor. Our government is nowhere near what it would have been like under Nebuchadnezzar. It's nowhere near what it would have been like under these Caesars of the first century. We're not facing that, though that may come. What you and I are struggling with now is the idea of what's being enforced. And so for a long time, I heard sermons on we're being forced to be tolerant. And you'll hear statements like, the only people who are not tolerated are the people who are intolerant of these sins. But I want us to hold that thought for just a minute. And to be careful of our language here because doesn't the Bible command us to be tolerant? And I think the answer to that is absolutely yes. We are to be tolerant. Think about what uh, Paul wrote to Timothy as he says, Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering. That long-suffering, sometimes you'll find it translated patience, but long-suffering is much more expressive. That you are willing to go as long as it takes to try to bring someone back. We think about as well what he wrote to the Romans when he said, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap coals on his head. So let's change our terminology. It's not so much the idea of tolerance. It's much more the idea of acceptance. To tolerate means that you don't agree with it. 
But you're not just flying off the handle every time you see a rainbow flag or every time you see one of these other social causes. But that is a very different situation than accepting these things. And while we do not have an emperor who's seeking to make us accept these things, we've got other things that are pressuring us to do that. And oddly enough, in our culture right now, it seems that the large corporations are taking on that role. That they're kind of being the enforcers and the influencers and saying, we're going to put these things out there and we're going to show you what it really means to be a cultured, accepting American and we expect you to follow suit. We find that also with our celebrities. We find that with our politicians. We find that with some of our big Protestant religious friends. That the push now is, you are not going to not only stay quiet about it, you're going to come to believe that it's the right way to be. And it's at that time we've got to be resolute. So we think about what's being pushed in our media, and I'm using that in its widest sense. We think about what we're seeing in our television program, what we're hearing on newscasts, what we're seeing on social media, and there is this inundating influence that's pouring in of all of these different ways of expressing these social movements in such a way that we will accept them as right. There's a danger there. Maybe there's some of us who are kind of old and grizzled and are not going to change our ways, but there's a younger generation and they're, man, right in the heart of it. And they're getting this pushed at every side without maybe the, the equipment that we have as older people or knowledge to keep us from falling to that. And you look at the statistics and they're staggering of how impactful this is on our younger generations. we got to be careful about that. Think about as well something that's been going on as a part of our culture. It's called the cancel culture. That's what we hear it referred to as. And I don't know that cancel culture itself is such necessarily a bad thing. Oftentimes when somebody is, is being in the wrong, they need to be called out for it. If they're using their public platform to do wrong, then, then it's okay. problem with cancel culture is, is it calls out, but there's no room for forgiveness. And so you've got people who will call out something that somebody did. Maybe it's a celebrity. Maybe it's a politician. Maybe it's 20 years ago. Some video has resurfaced. And the person comes out and says, I was a different person then. I was wrong. I've apologized. It's like, no forgiveness. We're done with you. But what I want you to consider is this. People who are unwilling to accept are going to be canceled in this. It's not maybe, it is. We will be canceled. There's going to come a point, I'm convinced, that for every Christian and every church that keeps a stand for right, there's going to be some kind of social penalty that's going to be brought for that. How are we going to stand if we're that person? Are we going to bow down and say, I'm not really worshiping the statue, I'm worshiping God, but everybody's going to think? <laughs> or are we going to look the king straight in the eyes and say, no, I, 
I cannot accept this. And that means we've got to be unswerving. When we think about what's going on right now, I don't think we can say that we're being persecuted. I think it would be too strong. It may be made uncomfortable, but there's kind of an indirect persecution. But we may be on the cusp of change. And why do I say that? Well, if you look at other Western nations, open speech is being mildly punished. In the United States, our founding fathers gave us a great gift with the First Amendment. And so far... First Amendment's been recognized that we can say what we want to. If we don't agree, we can speak that. But you begin looking at other nations that we would say at one time were pretty solid on civil rights and freedoms. And you're seeing these mild persecutions. For example, uh, there was an, an older gentleman in London who had been a street preacher, I think, most of his life. And when he began preaching a sermon on the streets of London that uh, a marriage is only between a man and a woman, they put him in jail that night. I think he was 72 years old. They put him in jail for that statement. He's released. There's other accounts like that. But we watch those things and we say, well, if they're happening there, how far are we from it happening here? How far are we from the point that if I'm preaching a sermon like this tonight, that the Eastside Church might have a fine slapped on it? I don't know the answer to that. How far are we that if we put a sermon that's opposing some social cause on the website, there's going to be a public boycott called for of that church? I don't know the answer to these things. I'm just simply saying, as we look kind of on the horizon, we're beginning to see some things happening along that line. So it's here I like to make the point. I hate preaching sermons like this. I hate preaching sermons like this because it tends to get us jittery. (laughs) We begin thinking, you're exactly right, this is going to happen. I don't know if it's going to happen or not. I'm not a prophet. God could choose to raise up a leader who helps get us back on the right track. I pray that that will happen. We don't need to borrow trouble. We don't need to think, man, things are going terribly. Because that will ruin the present, won't it? The time that we have right now, we're going to be mortgaging to the future to let future self be all in turmoil. Let's not do that. Let's not run around the farmyard yelling that the sky is falling when the sky might not really be falling. The reason I preach sermons like this is for this reason. I just want us to be ready. I don't want us to be taken off guard. I don't want us to get to a point where these things start happening and we don't know what to do about it. We're talking about it. We're dealing with it now. We're talking about the approach we're going to take should it happen. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't make the decision to stand firm on the plain of Dura. They had made that earlier in their life. That was just simply an application of a principle that they had laid down already. So how do we do that? Well, we're willing to take a stand. We commit ourselves and say, God wants to save us out of this. He can save us. But if not, it's okay. We're not going to bend. We're going to stand firm. 
We think about that as well, that we're going to be willing to stand like our brethren in the first century, these early Christians who were fighting battles. Let me just illustrate it from a brief sampling of passages from the book of Revelation. Just listen to these. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. By the way, I kind of think that's linking back to Daniel and the testing that they had. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they have loved not their lives even unto death. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. But as for the cowardly, as for the cowardly, first in line for the second death the coward who will not stand the faithless the detestable murderers, sexually immoral sorcerers, idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death who are you more worried about? the one who can throw this body into the fire or the one who can throw body and soul into the fire And so God says to us, just be unswerving. Respectful. You're not bringing undue attention to yourself. You're not necessarily irritating people. You're just simply saying, this is the line that I will not cross. That's what these passages show us. And so we take that and we add to it a point that I really want to stress to you tonight. We understand the importance of our spiritual community. I don't know that we appreciate that like we need to. That when we think about churches such as this who have agreed to work together, you know, it always kind of saddens me in a bigger congregation. I hadn't heard this here, but I've heard it in other places. Somebody will say, yeah, they're, they're a member here, but I really don't know them. And they've been here two or three years, but we've never really talked. (laughs) We're missing one of the big things that this is for. Why does God get us in collectives? Why is that an important thing? Well, he tells us. He says it's so you can love each other, and you can bear one another's burdens, and you can encourage one another, and you can admonish one another. The idea of a spiritual community is the idea that for a younger person, there is a wealth of experience and wisdom at hand. And for an older person, there's a wealth of enthusiasm and youthful excitement at hand. And you got everybody helping everybody else. Because when you look in the New Testament, one of the things you see is when the bad times came, they stuck together, didn't they? They came together, they supported each other in those times. And that's what I hope we're ready to do as well. And so as we think about being unswerving, it means taking the stand that says, I realize that this is likely going to be a costly decision I'm making. It may cost me my job. 
They start requiring me to do things that I cannot in good conscience do. It may cost me friends and family of people who I say, I'm sorry, I just cannot support that. It may cost churches, even to the point of having to meet in secret. It may cost us our, de- our life. What's it worth to us? When we look at these three young men on the plain of Dura, I hope we're looking in the mirror and saying, I will not bow down to what is contrary and against our God. So what's the moral of this story? It's just to be ready. It's just to be prepared. Not to worry. Not to sit around twiddling our thumbs. Turn off the news. (laughs) If you keep the news channel on 12 hours a day, get a good book. Stop listening to all of that. They're just riling you up. Turn on a nice song on the radio in your car rather than listening to that constant political drivel that's coming out. But be ready in the day that the statue is put before you. So that you can say, oh, I decided a long time ago, this is what I'm doing. And come what may, we don't have to worry about what men can do to us. Because God says, I'm with my people. And my people will be okay. Thank you for your good attention tonight. I love it when people visit gospel meetings. If you're not a Christian, you may be thinking after hearing all this, I don't know about this. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to get involved in all of this. Let me tell you. You look through the Bible, God doesn't sugarcoat anything. He never says, oh, you become a Christian and, man, your bank account's going to take off. and you're <laughs> None of that. Nor does he say become a Christian and you'll just be safe the rest of your life. In fact, he tells you pretty much the opposite. But what he says is, what's going on in this life, if you stick with him, is getting you ready for the life to come. I don't know what our eternity is going to be like. I know we're not going to sit around on clouds all day. And it may very well be that God is allowing us to go through these tests to get us prepared for that day when we're going to be with Him. And He says reigning with Him, whatever that means. He doesn't do all of this just to make us jump through hoops. He's doing all of this to make us vessels fit for His house. And for those who will stick with Him and trust Him, Even in the hard times, God is saying, I'll be with you. And it may not be pleasant now, but whatever you suffer now, I can assure you, I can bless you many more times over. That's the message of salvation. That God loves you. And that God wants you. Little old you. He wants you to be saved. He wants you to be a part of that eternal kingdom. He wants you to be there by His side. He wants you forever in this grand fellowship that he's wanted since the beginning of our creation.
So if you know what it means to be a Christian, you understand what it means to pass through those waters of baptism, to, to meet the grace of God with your faith and your trust and your understanding that God has said when you go under that water that you're buried with this, you're, you're crucified with His Son and buried with Him and His blood is going to wash away your sins and you'll be raised up in newness of life, ready for a life with, with Him that never ends. Then, then take action tonight. Make the choice tonight. doesn't have to be in front of all these people, but it can be any time. But just don't delay. We want to be ready. We want to be prepared. So that when the Lord returns, like he says, by telling us a story of these three young men, he can say to us, well done. You've been a great servant. Welcome home. If you need to respond, you can come while we stand and sing together.